those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine Favell and I'm the Director of Community Outreach here at the National Library. And as we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land on which we are now very privileged to call home and I thank their elders past and present for caring for our land. Shortly we're going to hear from two individuals who have been and still are shaping the artistic landscape in Australia. We asked them here tonight as part of the library's public programs for our exhibition Celestial Empire, Life in China 1644 to 1911. Now, Celestial Empire and its public programs would not be possible without the tremendous support of a group of wonderful partners. It's been an extraordinary collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, I thank the National Library of China for sharing its extraordinary collection with us and with all of you. And I hope tonight that you'll take the opportunity to see the exhibition, perhaps again for many of you. I know at least Roger in the audience has probably seen it a hundred times by now but you can never get enough of it. I thank our partners Shell in Australia, Seven Network, Wanda One Proprietary Limited, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels and, and our event partners, the ANU Centre for China in the World and Asia Society Australia for their generosity. I also thank our government partners, the Australian Government, for support through the National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program and the Australia-China Council and the ACT Government through Visit Canberra. But most importantly, I thank all of you for joining us this afternoon to hear from Tian Li Zhu and Edmund Capon in conversation. Born in Beijing in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, Tian Li grew up with her grandparents and they were her first introduction to an artistic life. Her grandmother taught her sewing and paper cutting and she learned calligraphy from her grandfather. Her work today draws on these folk art skills juxtaposing the traditional with contemporary themes and since moving to Australia in 1988, Tian Li has displayed her work in both solo and group exhibitions around the country and in China and now on the front of the National Library through Enlighten. For many of you, Edmund needs absolutely no introduction. It's widely acknowledged that in over 30 years as director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, he was responsible for its transformation from small town institution into a world-class gallery, showcasing the best of Australian and international art. His particular interests have long lain with China. Inspired in his youth, he achieved a Master of Philosophy in Chinese Art and Archaeology from London University's School of Oriental and African Studies. He began his career in the textiles branch at the Victoria and Albert Museum, later moving to become assistant keeper in the Far Eastern section. During this time, he undertook three cultural tours of China. Edmund arrived in Australia in, 18, in 1978, 1888, <laughs> we can wish, and the rest, as they say, is history. He oversaw many of the most important exhibitions of Asian art seen in Australia, including the 1983 blockbuster, The Entombed Warriors. As it turns out, Tian Li and Edmund are no strangers. Tian Li was a finalist in last year's Archibald Prize for her stunning portrait of Edmund in situ at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I suspect that the time they spent together during the creation of that portrait would have encouraged some fascinating conversations and I'm hoping that tonight we will get a little glimpse of the discussions that they shared during that process. We will have time for some questions, so save them up, them up 
and I hope that you will have a wonderful, wonderful evening. Please join me in welcoming Tianli Zhu and Edmund Capon. Thank you. Great. Thank you. I've, uh, well, thanks for, th thanks for asking us. Actually, we didn't, we, di we didn't have serious discussions doing the painting of that portrait, but we did get up to a lot of mischief, which is probably a lot more fun. <laughs> However, um, I tell you what, the first thing I was really taken with, with going round the show, um, uh, which I've now seen twice, was I had absolutely no idea what a wealth of material resided in this institution. It's some absolutely amazing documentation down there I had absolutely no idea about. And uh, I was asking where, you know, who, who and when it was all collected, so I've got some questions for you later anyway. Um, anyway, what the, the point of it, the discussion, you know, what, what, what are we going to talk about? What's the issue that we really want to address? And I'm just going to read something because I've written it, um, um, and then we can chat. Uh, it, it is that in spite of China's turbulent history over the last 200 years, essentially that's the era of the Manchu reign, which is the, the Qing dynasty, which is the subject of the exhibition, China remains as firmly identified and identifiable as ever. And during those past two centuries or so, China has witnessed and experienced the most extraordinary change and uh, above all pressures from the outside world as the West sought to exploit the potential of the Middle Kingdom. From the heights of power and confidence that were achieved in the early years of the Qianlong era towards the middle of the, you know, the 18th century, um, as you know, the time that I came to Australia, um, <laughs> those pressures <laughs> gradually um, exploited the inevitable weaknesses of a closed and increasingly corrupt administration. The journey to the eventual collapse in 1911 of the dynastic system that had, in essence, been in existence for you know, two millennia, uh, certainly since Qin Shi Huang's time in unification, uh, were the most dramatic in China's historical evolution over 7,000 years. Now, the other thing that I want to make a point about is that in spite of all those changes and all that sort of intensity of evolution, China's cultural evolution over 7,000 years or more is essentially intact. The claim is often made, particularly by China, that, you know, whereas the great civilizations that define the Western world, whether they be in Mesopotamia, Greece, Egypt, Rome, have essentially disappeared. China's continues. What we see in Chinese art today is the natural inheritor of what was happening in the material culture of, and indeed the ideological culture of China 7,000 years ago. So in spite of all those, those that turmoil, her cultural identity and sensibilities have survived. And today they flourish I think, stronger than ever, in a very different world to that of the mysterious and secluded one of the Manchu dynasty. Ch today, China plays a huge and dynamic role in the global politics, economics, business, etc., etc. We all know that. I was listening today when they were going on about selling Darwin Harbour to the Chinese. 
I thought we should sell Tasmania to the Chinese as well. Um, they, might, they might buy Canberra if you don't watch out. Um, and whilst Chinese artists are increasingly visible in the world and increasingly active in art practices and communities around the world, I believe the fabric of Chinese thought and sensibilities remain a sustaining and guiding characteristic of their cultural and creative psyche. I remember my first visit to, to China, which was in September and October 1972. So it was sort of vaguely towards the fag end of the, the, the Cultural Revolution. And, um, you know, the idea of art and culture was completely off the agenda. It was absolutely nothing. The only remotely uh, sort of uh, activity in the visual arts was what they called the Huixian peasant painters, you know, these little um, sort of Soviet-style of paintings. But museums were closed, galleries were closed, universities were closed. Uh, everything was closed except communes and carter camps, and I spent five weeks discussing everything from uh, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Anyway, it's this notion about the continuity, about the, the tenacity, if you like, of, of the Chinese cultural heritage and the Chinese artistic sensibility that's really going to be the substance of what we're going to talk about. The whys and wherefores, the contradictions and the aspirations of Chinese artists today. Do they acknowledge their indelible instincts of their Chinese heritage? Do they want to? Do they want to be seen and recognized around the world? Do they see themselves as artists of the world or simply as Chinese artists? And we might venture, too, into the murky territory of censorship and freedom and the intervention of politics into artistic practice in, in, uh, in China today. So we've sort of devised some themes which are roughly... Uh, just, yeah. Identity and definition is one. Continuity is, is, is another. The, the continuity, the threads of ideologi uh, ideological and spiritual notions and ideas and values, nature and the landscape, and then of the contemporary diaspora of, of, of uh, Chinese activities and artists. So d just, to, uh, I think we're going to talk about each theme as we go along, are we? Okay. I I guess, well, yeah. Sounds good. We, have we discussed this or not? Uh, yes, I think we have. Well, yeah, we have. Yeah. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> okay, so the first one is about the, the identity and... As I said, China claims this extraordinary uh, and tenacious uh, cultural, artistic, evolutionary uh, history. And I think it's one that they can claim with some justification. And I thought I'd begin with putting up there the most familiar of the contemporary artists, Ai Weiwei, who's very naughty. We all know that Ai Weiwei's naughty. I spent... He had a big show which was actually t really terrific, at the Royal Academy last year, opened in September in London. And I, I, I had sat for an entire afternoon outside the front of the Royal Academy having a chat with him. And he's, he's, a, he's a selfie gone bonkers, I can tell you. He must have taken on his phone at least 100 photographs of us sitting there. Then he picked up my phone and took, took about... 50 on my phone as well. We sat there and, and talked about um, uh, 
well, of course, his recent release. I mean, he, he, that was in September, and he, I think he only got his passport back in uh, July, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Xi Jinping actually gave it to him, I'm told. Well, that's what he told me. And he's now in, in Beijing and in Berlin and traveling around the world. He's got a show that's in, as you know, probably in Melbourne with, with Andy Warhol. But he, he interests me because I think he's the absolute, you know, what, what we're talking about is the tenacity of, of you know, the Chinese cultural and artistic sensibilities. And I think Ai Weiwei absolutely personifies that. And I've just thrown up one image here, which you probably all know. It's actually in the Queens and Dark Gallery, although there's lots of them. He once told me, th these are Neolithic pots from the Yangshao culture and the Neolithic culture in Gansu province. And you might think, oh, they're, they're five, 6,000 years old, these pots. Great treasures. Well, you can go to the Museum of Fire and Antiquities in Stockholm where they've got a storeroom of about 3,000 of them. So they're not, uh, you know, they're, they're very common. Let's put it like that. Ai Weiwei told me years ago that he'd, he'd got about 1,200 of these things, of these, these five or 6,000 year old pots. And he did this with them. He coloured them, covered them in very contemporary... Um, I, when did he do these? 2000 or before? I think it's a bit this before. This is 2008. Yeah. No, Probably no. Oh, really? theory. Yeah. Oh. Well, I, he was doing them in the late 90s. So anyway, the point is he was, he was covering these old, these many multi-thousand-year-old pots in very contemporary day-glow colours. As you know, he's done one with Coca-Cola around it and all that. And what, what intrigued me when I first saw him, I said, well, look, here is a, a, an object that speaks of its time, i.e. our time. And yet underneath that paint is, is a 6,000-year-old ceramic made in northwest China all that time ago, and it is actually untouched. So, you know, it carries its history within it, and yet it's got this wonderful veneer of, of modernity. I, I thought there's a, there's a lovely kind of you know, connotation that he's making there. And he did the same, as you probably know, with bits of furniture. He took bits of furniture apart and sort of screwed them up and made them all angular and very, very different shapes, etc. And he's done it with a number of other things. He's infamous, of course, for dropping a Han pot. Uh, and everyone said, oh, what a terrible thing to do. Well, again, there's, there's, to be honest, there's plenty more where that came from. Um, so we shouldn't, but I know we shouldn't say that. Yeah. But he's, I, I mean, to me, Ai Weiwei is the, is the embodiment of this sense of fundamental continuity in, in the artistic and creative sensibilities. And he's still working there today, as we know, beavering away, being as mischievous as ever, and, and upsetting the authorities whenever he possibly can, which on the whole I think is a good thing. I, I think you should say something I now, agree. Tini. Okay. All right. I was just probably interesting. Just listen. Um, I probably go back to you had you posed the question just a little um, before. You were saying 
uh, do the Chinese artist simply wants to be recognized as Chinese artists? And for me, if I answer your question, I will say, I would answer it, I'm Chinese and an artist. So not an adjective. You all know Tracy Moffat, don't you? Tracy sits there and she says, she's a feisty woman, she's terrific. She says, I'm an artist first and an Aboriginal second. I said, No, I don't put first or second equally. I'm Chinese no, well, and right. artist. <laughs> so we it's are the same. That's your problem. Okay. All right. Okay. And before I start, I must uh, review something that when um, Edmund and I were talking about this conversation, I documented our conversation. In one of my emails, I wrote the word breath and thought it was breath with the E. To breathe. With the, yeah, to breathe. And Edmund never corrected me until one day I found out the typo myself. However, Edmund was not only like the typo, but also suggested to use it as the conversation title, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Breath. The ancient, the wisdom is the, the knowledge. Wisdom is not knowledge that we can obtain from the library. Wisdom is obtained. Of course, you need a lot of knowledge, but it's experience. Like Edmund has a wisdom, and the ancient breath without the e is important. This this kind of like title made me think that how often, very very often as a Chinese and an artist, that I don't even think about the Chinese tradition. However, as a consequence, it outpours spontaneously. Northern Song poet Su Shi once wrote, I do not recognize Mount Lu, the true appearance, because I am in this very mountain. That's a Beisong Shiren Su Shi. Like many Orientalists, like what Edmund provides here is from an uh, outsider's perspective, that away from the mountain, that seeing the Chinese history in one breath, that we just heard the whole breath, that's very similar to the Buddhism and the Taoist viewpoint. And in the horizontal, we saw, we witnessed that he was running through from the history back to present, that in the, the horizontal breath, that's the Western terms. The other reason that is being difficult for me to recognize, however, it is the fact that the Chinese tradition is fascinating to the Western world. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> that's my work. That's, um, that's the Western rocks. world, yeah, the, the Chinese band, the Chinese tradition over time internally made it, the, the, its value seemingly dull that I do not recognize. And also, because from age of 15, I was trained in Western classical way in fine arts and influenced by the Western literature, art, and art history. Therefore, it's very easy to overlook the inevitable influences and the nurturing that I received 
from Chinese tradition. Only recent years, to be honest, I re-examined my works after intuitively created them. I recognized how my art has been spreading and developing Chinese tradition pervasively, yet unintentionally. It makes perfect sense that living nearly equally number of years in China and Australia, my art inescapably carries Chinese tradition because it's embedded in my vein and out of no choice, simultaneously outpouring it to the present day in the context of contemporary art. In my view, it perhaps living in Australia, that is, outside what the Chinese poet said, the Mount Lu, had made this ancient modern connection more coherent and significant. It is a similar experience to American artist Mark Toby merged abstract expression with Chinese ink painting. While it opened a new horizon for him, he never left his Western perspective. To me, my worldview of life and art was deeply rooted from my birthplace, China. That is, applying the interplay of yin-yang to adapt to the disharmonized contemporary world. In Taoist Zhuangzi's words, I am walking in two parts at once, the ancient, modern, the east, and the west. As we, we got, have we got onto the identity? Got, well, no, I'm just, there's, one, there's one other image in this bit. I'm okay, that's show. the identity. Well, no, no, no not which it, one? It, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, yes, it is very much. Um, you know, one of the re we're talking about this, just going back to this, this sense of, of uh, perpetual evolution and how it is that China has seems to have maintained its own pathway. And I actually think there are two very fundamental reasons and very, very practical reasons which have been a big factor. One is geography. China is actually geographically very well defined. And the other, of course, is language. Uh, and the, the, you know, the, the, the language is, has not really changed over two and a half, over 2,000 years. And so I'm gonna show you this picture, which is Xu Bing's book, for, uh, a, a book from the sky, which uh, was first shown in uh, an exhibition we did at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in, Oh, I can't remember now, about 1980s, late 80s, or 1990, or something like that. And I was really stupid, because um, I didn't buy it. Uh, and Queensland bought it, they own it now. But there are actually many versions of it. Uh, and it's, it's not only a beautiful work of art, and it's, it's a beautiful experience with these things, these, but of course it's... Like so much Chinese art, it's actually got real content. And whenever I th look at that, because all the characters in that are just slightly wrong. And it's all about how misleading information can be. And of course, it's a, it's a very pertinent 
and topical political observation. And it reminded me of, of many of, uh, particularly in the early Qing period, the late Ming and the early Qing period, many of the artists of that time you know, were you know, part of the Ming aristocracy. And then they got defeated and the, the Manchus came in. There's thugs from the northeast. And uh, they, you know, like, artists like Zhu Da particularly were painting these beautiful things. With, and we look at them now and just think they're, they're wonderful moments of expression, like a bird on a rock and the rock's floating. But of course, there's all kinds of political connotations like about instability and about uncertainty because of the political... It, it was a comment on the political condition in the same way that this is. We should move on yes, should to our next sweetly. theme of continuity. Um, and I put in... Uh, you've got to talk about that. Oh, that that's you. That's, that's you. That's all right. That's just how I... Uh, in a way that I'm talking about um, how I can... The identity as... Um, paper cutting, but it's nothing really about. Let's move on to the next one. <laughs> now, the next is, is Zhang Xiaogang. Have you, you've, you've seen this, the work of this artist? You probably have. Very, very distinctive. I mean, obviously, again, it, it's very, it's very, uh, it's, it's very, again, very political. They're all called bloodlines, so it's all about you know, the, the tracing your, your ancestry, etc. And there's, there's something rather stark about the imagery of his work. Uh, in, in a way, it, it, it's, it's very contemporary. The work is contemporary in the sense that it, you know, it's got a contemporary glass, it's got a modern glass. You look at it and you say, oh, that's a modern painting, which of course it is. But my, my, my feeling about it is that the, the, the texture of it and in a sense, even the, the, the message of empathy within it is very much part of, of, an, a, of a continuing Chinese tradition and, and a continuing Chinese aesthetic as well. Even though painting in China, like calligraphy, calligraphy and painting are indivisible. And in fact, in the Chinese tradition, as I'm sure you probably know, that you know, the, the, the three perfections of painting, poetry and calligraphy Calligraphy is deemed to be the highest of all arts because it contains both meaning and definition. You know, spirit and meaning. And I find, even in a painting like this, I can see and sense that sense, that quality of continuity, that same empathy for the... Even though the, the materials are different, the use of, of shading and volume and expression of volume is different, to me, it is nonetheless a natural inheritor of, you know, of you know, the, the, the Chinese tradition of, you know, of the song. You know, when I look at that, I think of that, the softness of a southern song landscape painting by Mi Fei or somebody like that. It, 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 it's a long bow, perhaps, but to me, this is in essence the consequence of that eternal journey of continuity. Yeah, what, can I just what, what yeah, can I got? just go can I just go back to this one? I have to talk about this one. Thinking of you, you talking about the calligraphy. This is I. This is me. If you can think of cutting using knife as a brush. Okay. So the way I talking, it's going back to the identity now. Is for the the way I 
dealing with the identity of Chinese tradition comes through the metaphor and the idioms of my art. In my art, I narrate uh, Chinese myth, folklore, or folklore-like story and childhood memories to unpack the hidden meaning of the idioms. The latter are highly, recommend, highly relevant, especially progressing ways addressing ills of the modern society. The reason that I constantly drawing back to the folklore is because they are my personal experiences. And secondly, the resources can never be used up. For example, the distinguished cutout form and animation style was influenced by my early 80, um, 1980s experience with a Shanxi paper cut artist and the folk theater, which are embedded with the profound belief from Chinese culture and yin yang. The traditional Chinese paper cuts can be compared as primitive art and inexpensive act of cutting palm-sized red, red paper. It is a Chinese tradition activity conducted among village women preparing for Chinese New Year and or celebrative events, decorations. However, my paper cuts are normally site-specific this is four and a half meters, I think, um, suspended from ceiling to floor, multi-layered in some cases, uh, large scale. And using this kind of paper cuts, it's a familiar, but unfamiliar inside and in size. This kind of familiar and unfamiliar aspect, in my view, could provoke thoughts and uh, the interpretation of the effect quite effectively. And that cannot be separated. I was talking, as uh, Edmund's talking about continuity. And I think continuity is the most fundamental um, theory in Taoism. One way to achieve that for me is to extend the philosophy and the methodology through my art practice. Um, this work because I'm a multimedia artist, so my art is more for the crossing discipline. It engages handmade with technology, the cinematic aspect similar to shadow puppets, which is originated from the Han Dynasty, but it's also in line with um, the practice of the South American artist William Kentridge, a method of transforming live forms enable me to um, using small two-dimensional paper cuts to create and manipulate moving images in order to narrate stories that are seemingly an ancient yet timeless. Indeed, the folk tale-like story comments on current social conflicts. What I was seeking is to outcome the boundaries of the traditional two-dimensional, undurable paper cuts to a three-dimensional, paperless, and durable work. Such attempt aimed to preserve a lost craftsmanship by making it possible to prevent the disappearance and sustain the richness of the ancient um, um, culture. Are we moving on to the next one? Yeah, that's a bit... That's a bit Frightening, isn't it? That's in the White Rabbit collection. Zhang Xin, 
he, he's, um, we're t- talking now about the, 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 the next of our, our sort of broad themes, which is the, the, the sort of the spiritual and ideological threads that uh, still continue. And um, this is uh, an artist who, who was born in, in Mongolia. And uh, I think he lives in Beijing now, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. But he's, he's fascinated with, with shamanistic rites. Uh, and th- this is the source of his, the inspiration for most of his work. And again, it, it comes back to this point about these threads, these, these, these sort of natural instincts which are so indelibly inscribed I- into the soul and the spirit, of, you know, of the, the creative soul and the spirit of Chinese artists, wherever they happen to be. And I, I was intrigued by this, because when I did a show for, for uh, White Rabbit, I put, I put this in, and um, I, I, I asked some questions indirectly of, of the artist, because he didn't come out, but, uh, about uh, his interest in, in these, these old shamanistic traditions, mainly from you know, northwest China but also about other, other things. And he said, yes, you know, I, uh, um, you know, I read, uh, uh, I studied the, the Confucian texts, I studied the Zhuangzi, I studied all these, these things. And somehow I was, I was quite intrigued by the fact that he was an artist very much of our time, yeah, with, with all the sort of angst and issues, and yet his, his mind, his soul, and creative spirit was absolutely driven by the, the ideological and spiritual sensibilities that were deeply enshrined in his imagination. And so, uh, again, you know, I remember talking to, to, to Ai Weiwei, too, about, about that, because he's, he, he loves Taoism, of course, as we all do. Yeah, you, you mentioned it. There's, have anybody read a, a book of essays by Pierre Rickman's? You know, the, the Hall of Uselessness, which is the most... I mean, it's got all his other wonderful essays in about French literature and about all, all kinds of things, Catholicism. And, um, but there's a number of essays about China which are absolutely brilliant. But what I really liked about it was the, the title, because the title is taken from uh, a line at the end of the fourth chapter of the Zhuangzi, which was written in the late fourth century BC, which simply states that everybody knows the value of what is useful. Nobody understands the value of what is useless. And I thought, is, you know, that, to me, that's a, a line that we should never forget. Because I was, yeah, I was doing a talk about architecture the other day, and I said, you realize it's the useless things that turn a building into a piece of architecture. It's the useless things, the non-functional things, which add that value. And I was talking to Ai Weiwei about, because he was actually quite interested in, 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 in Taoism, and, and less so in Confucianism, but certainly in, in, in this kind of, this, this hard-to-define spirit, this, the tenacity, in a sense, of the abstract in the imagination. 
Now you're going to show another picture. Yeah, I'm just saying I really would never like Confucianism at no, all no, no, because no, no, number no, one thing no, no, is no. obey, <laughs> and you think he would do <laughs> anything near <laughs> that? Confucianism is, <laughs> is all about doubtful. hierarchy. That's right, ritual and hierarchy. Well, he's from his family was from there, yeah, but he yeah, denied. Yeah. He chose to deny the authority and take yeah. a different part. Um, but he he makes yeah. there's a very important thing. Here. In Confucianism, though, which I um, we walk with both foot. So, um, what is it? Zuo, zuo shou. It's zuo, it's um, zuo the about um, that he essentially believed that uh, uh, governance by ritual rather than law was preferable, and I think I agree with that. He was he was he prefaced the Age of Reason by. A, about um, 15 centuries. He prefaced Montesquieu. Anyway, mm, sorry, okay. continue, yeah. madam. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, touch upon the, what Edmund said about the ideological uh, and the spiritual aspect. That that's how I, reflecting on my work, is quite, it's, I think it's a constant inspiration and exploration as I'm still very new to the field. So while many questions I believe once cannot be answered, my art constantly dressing this kind of social phenomena, in particular shadow character that is socially undesirable because it is a counterpart of the orthodox that's counting on Iwebe, we align on the same um, platform, I think. My subject come directly from inspiration of um, reality. Ironically, adapt the social expectations such as unwanted thoughts, taboo, or forbidden behaviors that are a hoard in the perceived civilized modern world and by conventional societies. The reason for exposing shadow merely because it is often repressed the core of my art practice has always been shadow and light, yin and yang interplay. The significance of the opposition's existence brings out the harmony. Achieving spiritually is an act of transcending material to immaterial by manifesting unity. It is driven by coincidence or chance in Western terms. Tao is emphasize coincidence as a pre-existence with space, while Swiss um, psychiatrist and uh, psychotherapist Carl Gustav Jung encountered a chance to extend its unconsciousness means that developed further of this concept. Different approaches by result, but the result is the same. Once you have achieved something by chance, you have reached the unity because there is no distinction between here and there, you and the object. It's a spontaneous co-coherence and existence. So that's how my uh, view on this um, spirituality. And we're coming into... So that, yeah, we're going to talk about... about the landscape. We'll come to this picture in a minute. Uh, in in Chinese art, 
Yeah, the, the, lands, the theme of the landscape has been the, the most tenacious and the fundamental theme. And um, it's not about recording what the landscape looks like. I and mean, if you look, if you think of a traditional Chinese landscape painting, a, a hanging scroll with all these rocks and all these things all over the place, no landscape looks like that. And it's not, a, it's not about interpreting what the eye sees. And the process was completely different too. The artists in China, right from, you know, from the, the Tang Dynasty onwards, would go out, experience nature, absorb it, absorb the experience, contemplate it, and then go back home and um, work the painting on the in the studio. There, there was, the plein air was simply not on. And in the 17th century, there was a, a wonderful artist called Shetao Daoji, who wrote a treatise on painting. And um, in that, he said, uh, you know, the single brushstroke is the source of all things. You know, it's about that way that you know, the, 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 up here is the mind and the heart and the soul. Something travels down that, down the arm to the hand. The hand is holding the brush, goes through the brush to the ink and then onto the paper. It's this, 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 this lovely sense of, of perpetual flow. So the, the, the landscape painting tradition was, was not about representing nature. It was about exploring man's relationship with nature. That was the fundamental purpose of, 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 of Chinese painting. And it, it's worth just touching on something else here in, in, the, in this context, which is the notion of art for art's sake, which we hold so dear in Western traditions, is actually unfamiliar in Chinese art. All Chinese art has a meaning, it all has a purpose. You know, this notion of, you know, of, of just making a painting and framing, putting it up on the wall, it's not... Paintings are not, are not hung on the walls. They're taken out and read, rolled up and put away. So the whole experience is completely different. It is very much about recording uh, uh, a much more an, an intellectual idea as opposed to a merely a visual idea. And what's interested me, and I put this up because it's a very different thing. This is Jun Chen, you know, a Chinese artist, but living in Australia. And you might know his work. He's, he's sort of gradually, he showed with Ray Hughes a lot. And what, what interests me about his work is that he's you know, defiantly, determinedly taking the, the, the oil, the, the brush, and the canvas. He's, he's very strongly and very deliberately taking the Western technique and the Western medium. And yet, every time I look at those paintings, I say, oh my God, that's a Chinese. That, that, that's done by a Chinese artist. And the first time I even saw his work, even though I, I, you know, I didn't see the name or anything, I had no idea who it was, I said, that's interesting, that must be a Chinese artist who's done that. It's about this, this, this sensibility, this interpretation of, of the landscape. And that, you know, that's a fairly sort of realistic view of the landscape, I know, and I accept that. But I, I would still maintain that it's fundamentally an interpretive view 
and fundamentally an expression of Jun Chen's feeling, association, and uh, you know, an emotional context of, of the landscape. Off you go. I think that's exactly right. You just give you some really? very, yeah, the very insightful knowledge. <laughs> and I think, to me, it's the authentic, the shenmei, yeah. the aesthetic yeah. of the Chinese yeah. to see what is the beauty. And the beauty actually is coming from the inside. Maybe it's not yeah. even in the flower, but that's also the same. Agnes Martin would say the same thing. The beauty is not in the rose, but... The beauty Who is did in you say? Agnes Martin? Yeah, Agnes Martin. He said the beauty well, is not the in the... lines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, also... He's a minimalist. I, I, he's a minimal. I'm a minimalist, too. And I, I think... Well, I cannot agree with you more. The inseparable relationship between the human being and the nature, the individual and the cosmos was a cha- um, an ancient... Chinese philosophy addressed, actually, that's addressed in uh, the divination text, Yi Jing, 3,000 years ago, known as the Book of Changes. Yet nowadays influenced the Western world um, understanding the Eastern thought. In Yong's foreword, actually, of um, Yi Jing that he um, um, wrote for Richard Wolman's translation, he um, claimed Wolman's grasp of living meaning of the text gives his version of using the depths of perspective that an exclusively academic knowledge of the Chinese philosophy that can never be provided. So that means, in my view, okay, uh, that while the nature and the universe is unknown, we do not know what is the infinite, but for Chinese, we study self, and by studying self, we know what is the nature trying to engage in with us. It's almost like uh, for art, we don't this is new. copy. This yes. is new. We don't copy nature. The art becomes mm. part of the nature. That's what also... Um, the artist Hans Arp was saying, we can, that's a data list, that we confuse the, the distinction between the art and nature. So the art is not like uh, imitates or copy the nature, the art is nature. So that's a very, um, I'm mm. saying, referencing it because I think they also stand in the Eastern point of view. I mean, this, that's also I agree with you so much that when you say there's always a meaning of the work. My work is kind of like very abstract. You could see how these things, they, they seem like very delicate cut, but they all very concrete to me, maybe ambiguous to the other. People will say, oh, how beautiful. One of them, um, when I am showing my work at the 4A um, Center for Contemporary Art, I had an animation. was a whole wall full of, um, I think there was one point that was here. Can I get up? <laughs> was in here. was a whole wall of um, this thing. That's actually it's part of poo. It's, sh- it's shit. So I was having, um, you know, very often I, I feel like I was expecting something and suddenly something unexpected, unfortunate events happened to me. So I have, oh shit, you know, so I enlarged this kind of like drama, a whole world of animation shit. Over. How did you do that? 
Oh, this one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to cling. Oh, sitting on it. Um, <laughs> coincidence, chance. Ask me, time is up. I'll just quickly finish that story. It was really funny. Because one of the old men, a senior man, asked me, what is that? He pointed out a pile of poo. And I was, he was a Chinese. And I looked at him. I couldn't answer to him. That was poo. And I was stuck. And a little child walked past and then he stopped the girl and said you know what is that that's ice cream <laughs> so that's very interesting answer and let me remind me a story um there are two scholars walking on the road and then they saw an old man was sitting there in meditation and one of the scholars went to him and said meditation do you ever seen buddha and the old man got up, smiled, looked at the scholar and said, I think you look like Buddha. Mm. Mm. And the scholar said, I think you look like a piece of shit. <laughs> so he went off. And the other scholar pushed this scholar and said, you know, he just give it back to you. Because in the Buddhist mind, you, see, you think things what you see that's revealing your own mind. When Buddha sees things beautiful, as we talk about the Zhong Chan's work, when see the outside world is beautiful because his mind is calm. So that's how the old man taught me a lesson. When I see the, the, world, the world is entangled, I'm always entangled with my life. What the, the old man, he must be very wise. What he sees pure, like Agnes Martin, I'm writing, bringing him, her back again. It's, it's a calm world. So that's, it depends on the individual interpretation of the things. So, so the art is very little. It only gives a suggestion. It never has answers. Now I come back to Guanwei. Okay, well, uh, th th just the last little last bit was, was about the diaspora. I mean, we can just touch on it briefly because we've got to do some questions. And... Um, you know, Chinese artists are now moving around the world, and particularly here. And Guanwei, of course, is probably one of the most um, prevalent of those artists who lives now in Sydney and Beijing. Um, but there's plenty more. And about how, in spite of their moving, you know, it was just like the Chinese diaspora anywhere in the world, I think. You take your, your culture, your heritage, your your deeply inscribed sensibilities and traditions with you. And it's intrigued. I think Guan Wei is a very good example of an artist who's, who's managed to, you know, to, to, find, to find his feet, both in Australia and in China, and somehow create a visual language that speaks to both worlds. Uh, the, they're very sort of autobiographical works, as you probably know about you know, the, the movement of peoples. But uh, I'm also thinking of, uh, of uh, artists in other parts of the world. There's a very elderly now Chinese painter in Paris called Zawuki, who's been there for 50 years now. And you know, if you look, you know, you looked at your landscape before. Uh, it's actually very like Zawuki's work in some ways. It's about, you know, it's about the instinctive brushwork, it's about the fluency, and it's about that 
that the honesty of that pure expression. And that's another, it's another, it's another interpretation of, of the diaspora. And, um, you know, it's exactly what TND is now doing. So, you know, working here in an environment which is, which is now a very cosmopolitan one, but it, without any sense of prejudice or any sense of um, abandonment of your own traditions and yet translating and transforming them into something that speaks to you know to us in our world today. That is a lovely painting of a terrible subject. <laughs> As I said, I was trained in the in the classical way, visual arts. So when I had the opportunity to paint Edmund, you know, what can you do? You take the opportunity, but I did say to Edmund, as Edmund, I haven't done painting for many years because I've been doing cutouts and the projections, animations of that. But you don't lose such opportunity when you have something. The, the reason I want to end my notes on this, this um, uh, last year's um, Archibald painting of Edmund because I, it, I think it could be seen as a visual dialogue that responding to the five themes we talked about, that we touched upon, the light and shadow, the, the minimal, and the infinite, absent and present, not only resonate with the law of nature, but also reveals the Chinese tradition continue encountering the Western world mm. in the um, contemporary sense, I think. So... Twombly. It's Tombly. Yeah. I love Tombly. I love you know, the story. I just Tom, these three. Has anybody actually seen the, 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 this, these, these triptych of big, which are fabulous? I mean, I first saw them in 1999. There was a show at the National Gallery in London, which was a really interesting notion. They'd asked 12 artists from around the world to respond to their favourite painting, and Twombly his favourite painting was Turner and the Fighting Temeraire, so he created the, these pictures. That's where I saw them. And in 2003, no, I'd met Twombly somewhere, oh, at an at a, at a, at a alfresco picnic in, in uh, Tuscany, of course. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I, I loved his work anyway. And I, I've suddenly thought, I think those paintings are so wonderful. And I contacted uh, Gagosian, his dealer, in about 2003 or something. And then I rang Twombly, who you know, has lived in Italy for, since the 50s. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, they're still in store in London. So I brought them out to Sydney, hung them in the old courts of the gallery. And I had to sort of, in the hope that I could raise the two and a half million dollars for the three pictures. Couldn't give it, nobody could, not the slightest interest, not the slightest interest. So I left them up there for about six weeks, and I thought, this is a lost cause. So I packed them, got more packed up, and the shippers came the next, and I got up the next morning, I said, that was a mistake. So I rang the shippers, I said, don't send them, bring them back. They came back, I hung them again, and literally within a month we'd raised the money. It was very odd but I had three absolute um, wonderful friends and eccentrics who were dead against it. 
Geoffrey Smart, Margaret Olley and Barry Humphreys. Um, the Geoffrey Smart story is a long and complicated one because they, they go back a long way, a, a couple of old queens. Um, and uh, Ollie didn't like them at all. She said, oh, Edmund, do you really want to buy those wobblies? I might keep on calling my wobblies. And Barry, Barry Humphreys didn't like them. And Barry actually wrote a little poem that he published in The Spectator in London. And he said, oh, um, uh, oh Edmund's friend, the paint, uh, Mr. Twombly, the artist who cannot draw. And on that note, we'll... <laughs> We should finish. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks for your patience. <laughs>